We started looking at these uh, key characteristics that we long to be seen in us as a local church, and we started to look at the first one, that is that we want to be a, a local church that is God-glorifying, that our purpose is to glorify the God of the Bible, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in our worship, work, and witness. And uh, we said last time that the landscape of Christianity today is perhaps more cluttered and complicated than ever before. And though there are encouragements, there's also much error and uh, weak theology, casual Christian conduct and commitment. And then we've had all the impact of COVID-19 and churches have been shaken. So we ask the question, what hope then for a, a small local church in such strange and difficult days? And we said that life in a, a little local family of the Lord's people can be tough. It's not easy. But God doesn't put us in churches because they've got it totally together or because they are as we want and tick all our boxes. It is because it is his purpose to put us in a spiritual family. And that spiritual family is well made up of, of misfits and outcasts, but united together in the Lord Jesus Christ, saved by that amazing grace and brought together to display his glory to the world around us. And the Bible tells us that our God is a God who uses the lowly, who uses the despised and the weak things so that all the glory may go to him. And so the local church, even a small one like ours, is central to the sovereign plan and purpose of God. And through fellowships like this, and people that at times we might find difficult and struggle with, God wants to show the triumph of his love and his grace. And the local church coming together, even now as we are here, is where Jesus says that he is present in a unique way. When heaven touches earth, as it were, and so you have these little outposts of the kingdom of God. But these are difficult days. And so how do we press on when there are so many challenges, when the enemy is doing all that he can to ruin and to divide and to rip apart, when we might feel weary and discouraged, how do we press on? And we said in Isaiah 6, what we need and what we long for is a fresh vision of our great God. We need to see him, the God as revealed in Scripture, so that we bow in reverence and adoration, knowing that he is in control, to see his supreme majesty. And we saw that Isaiah in this encounter, if you have that passage open in front of you, is brought to be in the presence of such a God. And we see that Isaiah is confronted with the God who is holy, the God who is the king, who is on his throne forever, whose plans forever stand. The impact being that though the days may be difficult, though there is much around us to cause us great concern, he is in control. It's all in his hands. Now, friends, we've got to be honest and say that discouragement can come to us quickly. The world that we live in is naturally a discouraging place. You say, oh, well, that's a bit downhearted. Well, it's a discouraging place because sin has marred everything. And so that is the reality of this broken world. And so we are going to have to battle discouragement. And that's not just something for us here. That's something generally. And the enemy wants to discourage. We saw that last time. 
and he wants to pick up on every bit of disheartening ammunition that he can, and he will do his best to try and discourage the Lord's people. And often he will try and hit the leaders, and he knows that if he can succeed there, then it will generally discourage the whole church. And a discouraged church can very quickly become a disunited church. And then a disunited church, as one said, can very quickly become a dispersing church. People begin to disappear. And that's why the New Testament is so full of commands to love one another, to encourage one another, to build one another up. We need one another in that sense, to help one another as we face this discouragement. And we have considered how that the present darkness only serves to make the Lord in his work more glorious when he shows his hand, when he either comes in power to awaken and bless and save, or eventually and ultimately when he comes again in his great glory to draw this evil age to its end. And so, friends, it's only as we fix our eyes on Christ and on our God that we will be encouraged to go on whether we're large or small, and to do all for his glory. And so all that we are, all that we seek to be and do, has to begin with him, has to begin with the great God of heaven. And so following on from what we were looking at last time, I want to ask this morning, well, what will that look like? What will mark a church that is looking to God in that way? What will mark a church that has that right biblical view of God's sovereign majesty? And there are a number of things that we see in our passage before us. And the first is this, a God-glorifying church will be marked by humility. We will be a humble people. As Isaiah sees the sovereign Lord high and lifted up, any thoughts of his pride or self-righteousness are destroyed, and yet we see that the Holy One will deal graciously with him. You know, you could even say about Isaiah that he had much to commend him. You know, there was, there was much about him that, you know, from a natural point of view, would have been in his favor. But he'd not yet been brought to see the seriousness of his own sin. He needed to be broken before he could truly be used. And so Isaiah is taken and he is confronted with the stunning holiness of God, the sovereign one of his throne, and the conviction is immediate. He no doubt thought that he was dead. He knew that it was impossible to see God and live. Exodus 33:20. no man shall see me and live. And that's why his response reflects this. If you look at verse 5, he says, Woe is me, for I am undone, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. You know, no doubt Isaiah also had in his mind what had happened to King Uzziah, who had died. We find that out, don't we, in the first verse of the passage. But just to let you know about Uzziah, you see, Uzziah had tried to rule and do what was right in the eyes of the Lord. And uh, there had been a time when he'd ruled in that manner. But if you were to read in 2 Chronicles 26, his heart was lifted up with his success. And he was full of himself and full of pride and full of self-glory. He started looking to himself as, as the saviour, as it were. And in that arrogance, he had gone into the holy place to burn incense on the altar of God, something which was not permitted for him to do. The priests had tried to stop him from doing it, but Uzziah wouldn't listen. 
And he just forced his way in. And judgment was instant. Uzziah was struck with leprosy. He was made ceremonially, ceremonially unclean. And he was forced to leave the temple never to return. And in fact, he would live in isolation unto his death. You see, God is holy and he must punish sin and uphold his word. And Isaiah had lost sight of that and he had become consumed with himself. You know, as an aside, it can be so discouraging when powerful ministries, which were once maybe a great blessing, are brought down because of sin. When those who have maybe been granted gospel success begin to look to themselves more than look to the Lord. Many examples could be given and casualties in the spiritual battle. But ultimately, Isaiah is terrified in the presence of the holiness and the majesty of God. And so he, he cries out in anguish. He cries out and says, woe to me. That word woe, by the way, is very interesting because in Isaiah 5, he had pronounced six woes on the people of Jerusalem. And he condemned them for a whole host of sins. Now, you know that I uh, like to point out numbers sometimes. And it's interesting to note that in Hebrew writing, these things usually come in sevens. Seven being the number for wholeness or completion. So you've got these six woes in Isaiah 5, and so we'd expect one more. But what maybe Isaiah didn't see was the fact that the final woe will come upon himself as he was brought before the sovereign Lord in majesty. And so exposed before God, he could only cry out and say, I'm ruined. You see, being brought into the presence of God was a deeply humbling thing, and the sinner in the presence of holiness is always broken. There's no pride, they're brought low. You see, when we have a right view of God, the God of the Bible, his holiness and sovereignty... It serves also to bring us to see ourselves as we actually are. And suddenly maybe the comparisons that we've made with others disappear. You know, sometimes we make ourselves look good. Well, I'm not as bad as that person or, or this person. All that goes when we're in the presence of God. When we're brought before his perfect holiness. And when we are, there's only conviction. And sometimes when we're given to see again the seriousness of our own sin, you know, we can feel like giving up. And the enemy is quick to sweep in and accuse us and trample us down. But that's why we must see that God doesn't leave Isaiah there. But I just want also for you to see that in this confession that Isaiah comes out with, his specific confession comes around his words. The conviction comes that he was a sinner and also particularly in this one area of his life where he had previously been committed to doing God's will. You say, well, what's that about? Well, Isaiah was a prophet. It was his job to speak God's word. It was his role to call out sin and pronounce judgment. And yet when confronted with that holiness of God, he was forced to admit that he himself was a man of unclean lips that he was a sinner just like everybody else. And so he's convicted of his own sin. He's also convicted of the, the sin of the people around him who are in violation of God's holiness. And so he's broken over the state of himself. He's broken over the state of those around him because he is in a time of terrible decline. 
And we said last time that he's going to have to be faithful in a time when cities and areas will be ruined and deleted. Do you know, friends, I was thinking as I was reading that, we can associate that with, with that spiritually ourselves, and it can, be, it can be so hard at times if all we feel as though we're seeing around us is decline. And we can get demoralized. And that's why, again, we need to look to our God. And so Isaiah feels this, and he has this encounter with God's transcendent glory, and it, it humbles him as he's confronted with God's reality in his own condition. And so in the future, when Isaiah would be used to speak God's word, it would never be from a position of pride or self-glory, but brokenness and humility. It would be from a position of dependency, looking for mercy and grace. You know, what that means for us is this. When a church, when a local body of the Lord's people has a right view of God, of God's holiness and his sovereignty and his majesty, together they have been humble before the Lord. And they serve from a position of humility because they have encountered the true and living God. And so its members, those who make up the local body, will be those who have realized the seriousness of their sin and that their only hope is in the mercy and grace of God in Jesus Christ. And so there's no place for pride. There's no place for agendas. There's no place for boasting, but realizing that without Christ, we are nothing. And that humility is so important, friends. Because it affects our approach to everything. In our lives as individuals, in our lives as a church, it affects our approach to uh, worship, humbly realizing that worship is for God and not for us. In our evangelism, genuine heart for the lost, realizing that we would be lost were it not for the grace of God. Our attitudes and our relationships with our brothers and sisters, how we should esteem one another because we have a right view of self and a right view of God. Our attitudes towards those who are outside, those who are still blind and dead in their trespasses and sins, desiring for God to be glorified in the world. You see, when we have that view of God, we want to make much of him, not us. And so the question is, have you been humbled through a true encounter with the living God? Does your relationship with God show itself in every part of your life in a gracious, humble attitude? It doesn't mean that, you know, we don't stand for truth. It doesn't mean that we're not clear about the gospel, but it means that we do it in a way that glorifies God through our humility. Have you been brought to see your sin and cried out to God? You see, a church that has a right view of God will be a humble people. It will be marked by humility. But it also will be marked by gratitude, thankfulness. You see, God, in his grace and mercy, didn't just leave Isaiah in that convicted state in his sin. Look at verses 6 to 7. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a live coal which he had taken with the tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth with it and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your iniquity, your guilt is taken away. Your sin is purged. Literally, it is atoned for. She got this great grace. Now, why is it important to see that the angel took the coal from the altar? The coal comes from the place of sacrifice. 
It was the place where the sacrificial lamb had been offered to atone for sin. So Isaiah's deliverance, his forgiveness, his reconciliation to God was on the basis of a blood sacrifice. And that's crucial because, as Hebrews 9.22 makes clear, without the shedding of blood, there's no remission of sin. And so this sacrifice had been made. The sacrifice is also applied directly to the place of Isaiah's sin. The burning coal is placed upon his lips. I, I can't imagine the pain of that, by the way. But because the coal is applied to his lips, it is an indication that his sin is dealt with. It represents the removal of Isaiah's guilt. And so the sacrifice on the altar didn't only deal with the sinful nature that he had inherited from Adam, but also the burning coal symbolized the application of the atonement, meaning not only his sin in that general sense had been dealt with, but each particular sin had been dealt with too. His sin, not in part, but the whole. And so Isaiah did nothing to remove his own guilt. He did nothing to pay for his own sin. Rather, God intervened, not only supplying the sacrifice, but applying it to him. God accomplishing, God applying, God working. Isaiah is a recipient of this sovereign grace. You know, friend, surely we can see all of this points to the grace that God has given to us if we're saved in the Lord Jesus. The sacrificial death of Jesus on the cross was a guilt-removing, sin-atoning sacrifice. And when Jesus died in our place, if we are those who believe, he took our sin and dealt with it. His work on the cross accomplished full salvation for the believer. And it is applied to them by the Holy Spirit. And so this this great irresistible grace, the live coal, as it were, of Christ's death on the cross is applied directly to the unclean lips of our sin. And that's the only way that ruined sinners like you and me can be made right with a holy God. And so I ask you again this morning, have you been brought to see your sin? But also have you been brought to trust in Jesus? His death on the cross and to know that you're forgiven. I pray that you would, that you would run to him and you would cry out to him, say, woe to me, oh God, have mercy upon me. You know, and if you have, what other response to such amazing grace can there be but thankfulness? You know, if God has taken hold of us, if God has broken into our lives, if God has touched us with his love and his mercy and his grace and he saved us, surely we should be overwhelmed with thankfulness. You know, one of the ways that we battle discouragement best and battle discouragement that we may have with our own failings is by guarding our hearts with that thankfulness and reminding ourselves and reminding the enemy that what makes a Christian is not what we find in ourselves. It's the blood and righteousness of Jesus Christ. And it's all of grace. As Paul says, 1 Corinthians 15, by the grace of God, I am what I am. He knew that he was the chief of sinners and yet he glorified in the grace of God which saved him and would use him. And so a church, a local church that glorifies God is marked by that thankfulness. 
for God's saving grace and his constant goodness towards his people, the rich blessings that he has given to undeserving sinners. And as a body of believers, when we come together, we know we're sinners, but we have heard the joyful sound that Jesus saves. And we rejoice in it. We've been born again to a living hope. We are new creations and we should be thankful. And such a church will be serious about sin, but we will rejoice in the gospel. And we will boast in Christ and we will exalt Christ and that should mark us out. Should mark us out in our worship, in our outreach, in our fellowship to make much of Jesus. We are what we are by God's grace. We owe everything to him. And we should be thankful for that. So, humility, thankfulness. But also, a church that glorifies God will also be marked by commitment. You know, Isaiah had been broken before the majesty and holiness of God. He'd been reconciled through the work of God and great grace. And now he was in a position to serve the Lord. And he was eager to serve the God who had done all for him. That's always the basis for service. Seeing God, knowing his grace, realizing the privileges we've been given in Christ. When we lose sight of that, you know, when we're discouraged, we don't want to serve. And we can lose heart and we can pull back. And that's why we need so much to fix our eyes again on our glorious God because it pulls our vision away from us and all the troubles and the drawbacks and onto him. So much of our discouragement comes when we're just consumed with self and we need to look to God because when our hearts are full of him, there is less room for self and the things that drag us down. Verse 8, I heard the voice of the Lord saying, whom shall I send and who will go for us? There's a little reference there to the Trinity, by the way. Then I said, here I am, send me. No hesitation, no negotiation, no argument. He was ready and he was willing. He was open to however the Lord was going to use him. And the work of grace in Isaiah's life constrained him to surrender his will to God and to commit to serving him. You know, it's interesting. Isaiah didn't change his mind either when the task was revealed. You know, because it was going to be tough. His mission was going to be discouraging. It was going to be costly. It was going to be hard. He was going to have to preach judgment to people who didn't listen, who didn't want to repent. And, you know, he, like us, if we preach the truth of the gospel, was so out of step with the people around him. It must have been difficult. And it will be for us. He wasn't going to be successful in the world's eyes. There was no promise of fruit or blessing. But all that didn't matter. He was committed to serving his God. And the only thing he asks, verse 11, is how long? Now, to be clear, that's not to be seen as a lack of willingness. He just wants an idea of the length of this mission. His submission to the will of God and commitment to the work of God was not in question. And we need to remind ourselves that God does for us what we cannot do for ourselves. And that is true every step of the way. And when we see his sovereign hand at work for us, even before the foundation of the world, we marvel at his grace and his goodness. 
And a a God-glorifying church is marked by brothers and sisters who are committed to the Lord, committed to his cause, and who are submitted to what he would have them do regardless. They are in. They're in the work, not because it suits them, not because it fits in with their ideas or their plan and agenda, but because it's God's work and they want to serve him. And so we are to be committed to serving faithfully even when the task that he has given to us maybe looks unfruitful, maybe looks unfashionable, maybe looks unpalatable to the world around us, and yet we do it because it's for him and because we love him and because he deserves the priority in our lives. And it's not easy, but it's for him, the one who has done all for us. It can be a struggle. We want to please self, but it is for him. And so we are committed and available to serve, support, to pray, to look to him, depend upon him, to hope in him, to serve Christ. I wonder if that's your heart. You know, one of the areas that we show our submission to the Lord is in our prayer lives, both as individuals and as a church. And when we have that right view of God and his majesty and sovereignty, that shouldn't be a, a, a limiting factor in our prayer, shouldn't inhibit us. You see, we have the privilege of coming to the Father through Jesus. He has opened that new and living way. And so we come to this great God who is able to do exceedingly abundantly. So even though the mission is hard, even though service is costly, even though we feel our weakness and our insufficiency, we come to the God who is sufficient, whose resources are unending, who is sovereign, who will accomplish his purposes. You know, I'm sure when Isaiah saw what God required, he must have thought, how on earth am I going to be able to do this? But God would be his strength. God would be his sustainer. And we have to remember that we cannot serve out of our own resources, but God hasn't asked us to do that. He will give us what we need. And one of our primary tasks as a local church that he has given to us is to proclaim the gospel. And when we look at the society around us, when we think of our loved ones who are outside of Christ, we see that hardness, we see their hatred for the things of God, and it's easy for us to become discouraged. But that's why seeking the Lord, remembering who he is, constantly reminds us that God is able to do what we cannot do. That God is able to save the unlikely, the hardened sinner. That God can intervene. He can change hearts. He can transform wills. He can bring life to the dead. And we glorify him when we serve and reach out in the realization that we are dependent upon him. And the outcome is dependent upon him. And we have to surrender to that. It's not about us. It's about him. And our prayer should reflect that. Prayer and labor, but God gives the increase. He has the power. He has the resources. Not by might, but by my spirit. During the 1920s and 1930s, the Sudan Interior Mission had sent a number of missionaries over into Ethiopia to preach the gospel. And uh, they were there to preach the gospel and establish churches. And they had been through nine years of heavy, intense gospel work. Nine years. 
and there are only 48 individuals who have been converted. Now, we would rejoice in that, it's wonderful. But they were discouraged, downhearted, only 48. And it was then, as the world scene changed, Mussolini's Italian army invaded and the missionaries were forced to leave the country. They had to get out. And the missionaries, as they were leaving, they were so concerned for this tiny group of believers who were going to be alone in a, in a hostile land, what was going to happen? How on earth would this fledgling work survive? Well, war went on and eventually war ended and the missionaries were able to return and they were astonished at what they found. You see, many have been saved. Churches have been planted and it was reckoned that there were around 12,000 believers then. You see, during those few years, God had been mightily at work through those few young, inexperienced, unprofessional believers, and he had done a mighty work. It shows that we must not let what seems like slim resources stop us from doing what needs to be done for the Lord, because God can work in whatever circumstances. What he requires of us is to be committed to that. And that will mark a God-glorifying local church. And then as we finish, a God-glorifying church will also be marked not only by humility and thankfulness and commitment, but also a desire for holiness. You know, as a people who have been brought to know the Lord and gripped by grace, our love for God will show itself in our desire to be holy as he is holy. And like Isaiah, when we're brought to see our sin, we also see how far we fall short and our total lack of resources or righteousness or holiness. But what we lack is found and given to us in the Lord Jesus. And so when we are saved, we are made righteous, we are made holy in position, and these things are worked out in our lives as we go on with the Lord until we're called home to glory. And one of the purposes of God in saving sinners like you and me is to make us a holy people, set apart, blameless in his sight. And that can only be true of us as we are united to Jesus. You know, Jesus died on the cross to accomplish this. Colossians 1, And you who were once alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now he has reconciled in the body of his flesh through death to present you holy and blameless and above reproach in his sight. Titus 2, our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us that he might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for himself his own special people zealous for good works. And so the Holy Spirit applies this redemption, this salvation in Jesus, and is working in us with that same end in view to make us like Christ, to be made holy. 2 Timothy 1.9, who has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace which was given to us in Christ Jesus before time began. So God works in our lives to save us by grace, to keep us by grace, to sanctify us by grace. And so we are to pursue holiness in our lives and in the church. To pursue those things which are pleasing to the Lord, the working out in us what God has worked in. 
Titus 2 again, 11 to 12. The grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in the present age. And so as a body of the Lord's people, the scriptures say that we have to say no to worldliness and to pursue holiness. And so simply, it matters how we conduct ourselves. It matters how we behave, as it were. It matters how we conduct ourselves when we come together. It matters how we conduct ourselves in our lives before a world that is already opposed to God and opposed to the gospel and opposed to holiness. It matters how we worship. It matters how we seek to engage with the world. It matters how we conduct our relationships with each other. And when we pursue worldliness, what are we doing? Well, we seek self. We seek recognition. We seek success. But when we pursue holiness, we seek God. We seek his glory. And we are taken up with the glory of Christ and the gospel. And so a God-glorifying local church will also be marked by a desire amongst the people for holiness. Holiness in their lives as individuals and holiness together as we seek to serve him. So these are the marks then that we can see in our passage. Humility, thankfulness, commitment, and holiness. These mark out a people who are glorifying to God because they are his work in us. Humility, which comes from brokenness over our sin and our need of the Lord. Thankfulness for the stunning grace that God has demonstrated to us. Commitment to give our all for the one who has given everything for us. And holiness because we love him and we want to please him. Friends, these are the things that we should be praying for, for one another. The chief end of God is to glorify himself. And he is directing and disposing all things for his glory. And if God's purpose is to pursue his glory, then as his people, it should be our purpose too. And we need his help. We need to pray for his help. And we need, again, that vision of the greatness and the majesty of our God. Because this is the God whom we serve. This is the God who is faithful. This is the God who is able to do exceedingly abundantly. This is the God who is able to intervene in this world that we look at and we, we throw our hands up in, in, in anguish and, and all manner of emotions because we, we see it ruined. But our God is able to intervene and to save. And that is what we should be looking for. And so I pray that God would work in us as a local body of his people, that we would glorify his name and that we would be humble and thankful, and committed, and holy, and all to his glory. Amen.